This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. Thank you. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Sumit Chanchala. He is an artificial research engineer over at Facebook. He holds a Master's of Science in Computer Science from NYU. Welcome to the show, Sumit. Thanks, Byron. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. So let's start out with uh, your background. How did you get to where you are today? I have been reading over your LinkedIn, and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, um, it's almost accidental that I got into AI. I, I wanted to uh, be a a artist, more of a digital artist, and I went to uh, intern at a visual effects studio. And after the summer, I realized that I had no talent in that direction. So I instead picked something uh, closer to um, what my core strengths lie, which is programming. And I started uh, working in computer vision uh, just on my own in undergrad. And slowly and steadily, I got to CMU uh, to do robotics research. But this was uh, back in 2009, and still deep learning wasn't really a thing. Uh, and AI wasn't like a hot topic. And I was doing stuff like teaching robots to play soccer and uh, doing face recognition and stuff like that. Um, and then I applied for master's programs at a bunch of places. I got into NYU and I, I didn't actually know what neural networks were or anything. And Jan LeCun, uh, in 2010 was more accessible, um, than he is today. So I went, met with him and I asked him what kind of computer vision work he could give me to do as a grad student. And, and he asked me if I knew what neural networks were and I said, no. Uh, and this was a stal stalwart in the field who I'm sitting in front of, and I'm like, I don't know, explain neural networks to me. But he was uh, pretty kind, and he guided me in the right direction. And um, I went on to work for a couple of years at NYU uh, as a master's student and simultaneously as a junior research scientist. Um, and I spent another year, uh, almost a year there, uh, as a research scientist, uh, while also separately doing my uh, startup, um, I was I was uh, I was part of a uh, music uh, and machine learning startup uh, where we were trying to teach um, machines to understand and play music, and. That startup went south and, and I was looking for new things. And uh, at the same time, I've started maintaining this tool called Torch, which was uh, the industry-wide um, standard for deep learning back then. And so Jan asked me if I wanted to come to Facebook because they were using a lot of Torch and they, they wanted uh, some experts uh, in there. So that's how I came about. And once I was at Facebook, I... I did a lot of things, uh, research on adversarial network, uh, engineering, uh, building PyTorch, 
etc. Well, let's go through some of that stuff. I'm, I'm curious about it. With, with regard to neural nets, in what way do you think they're similar to how the brain operates and in what way are they, are they completely different? I'd say they're completely different, period. Um, and we think they're similar in very, very high level and vague terms. Like, oh, they do hierarchical learning, like humans seem to think as well. And that's pretty much where the similarity ends. We think and we hypothesize that in some very, very high level way, neural networks, uh, artificial neural networks learn like human brains, but that's about it. So the effort in Europe, the well-funded effort to the Human Brain Project, yes. which is deliberately trying to build an AGI based on the human brain, do you think it's a worthwhile approach or not? I, I think all scientific approaches, all scientific explorations are worthwhile because unless we know um, and it's and it's like a reasonably motivated effort, right? It's not like some random people with bad ideas trying to put this together. It's a very well-respected effort with like a lot of experts. Um, I personally wouldn't necessarily take that direction because I there's there's many approaches to to these things. One is to like reverse engineer the brain at a very fundamental level and try to put put it back together exactly as it was. It's like uh, investigating the car engine, uh, not knowing how it works, but like, you know, taking x-ray scans of it and all of that and, and trying to put it back together and hoping it works. And I'm not sure if that would work with as complicated a system as, as the brain. Um, so, in terms of like the approach, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would do it the same way, but I think it's always healthy to explore um, various different directions. You know, it, it could well turn out, some people speculate that a single neuron is as complicated in its operations as a supercomputer, which, which either implies we won't get to an AGI or we certainly won't get it by building um, something like the human brain. Let's talk about vision for just a minute. You know, if I show a person just one sample of some object, a statue of, you know, a raven, and then I show them 100 photos with it partially obscured on its side in the dark or darker, half underwater, weirdly lit, person could just boom, 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 pick it all out. But you can't uh -huh. train computers anything like that. They need so many symbols, so many examples. So what do you think's going on? What are humans doing that we haven't taught computers how to do? Um, I, I think it's just like diversity of tasks we handle every day. Like if, if we had a, had a uh, machine learning model that was also handling so many diverse tasks as humans do, um, it would be able to just pick out a raven out of like a complicated image just fine. It's just that when 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 machines are being trained to identify ravens, they're being trained to identify ravens from a database of images that don't look very much like like 
the complicated image that they've been given. And because they don't handle a diverse set of tasks, they're like, you know, doing very specific things. They kind of overfit to that data set that they've been given in in some way. Um, I think this is um, just a matter of like increasing the number of tasks we can uh, make a single machine learning model do and over time um, they they will get as smart like it, of course the hard problem is like we haven't figured out how to make the same model do like over a wide variety of tasks so that's transfer learning and it's something humans seem to do very well yes is it, does it hinder us that we, we take such an isolated uh, domain-specific view when we're building narrow AIs. We say, well, we can't teach it everything, so let's just teach it how to spot ravens. And we kind of reinvent the wheel each time. Or, or how do you think, do you even have a kind of an, a gut intuition where kind of the core, the secret of transfer learning at scale is hiding? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not that we don't want to build models that can do like a wide variety of tasks. It's just that we haven't figured it out yet. The most popular research that you see in uh, media that's being you know, highlighted uh, is the research that gets superhuman abilities in some specific niche tasks. But there's a lot of research um, that we deal with day to day that we read about that is not highlighted in, in popular media that tries to do um, like one-shot learning and like, you know, smarter transfer learning and stuff. And as, as a field, we're still uh, trying to figure out how to do this properly. Um, it's like, I don't think as a community of AI researchers, we're restricting ourselves to just do the expert systems. It's just like we haven't figured out as well uh, how to do like more diverse systems. Well, you said neural nets aren't much like the human brain. Would you say just in general, mechanical intelligence is different than human intelligence? Or, or should one watch how children learn things or study how people recognize what they do and cognitive biases and all of that? Do you think? I, I think there's a lot of value in um, doing cognitive uh, uh, science, like, you know, li- looking at how children development happens. And, and we do that a lot, like, wh- like a lot of uh, inspiration and ideas, uh, even in uh, machine learning and neural networks, does come from looking at uh, such aspects of human learning and human intelligence. Um, and, and, and it's being done, uh, like we collaborate, for example, at, uh, at FAIR, Facebook Air Research, with, with uh, a few researchers who do, uh, who try to understand child development and child learning. And we, we've been building projects in that direction. For example, children learn things like object permanence between certain uh, ages. Like, you know, when, if you hide something from a child and then make it reappear, does a child understand that you just put it behind your back and then just like, showed it to them again or does a child think that 
that object actually just disappeared and then appeared again. So these kind of things um, are heavily studied and like, we know, like we try to understand how the mechanisms of learning are. And we've been trying to like replicate these with neural networks as well. Like can a neural network understand what object permanence is? Can a neural network understand what, how physics works, you know, like between like children, under, like learn how physics works by you know playing a lot you know playing with blocks playing with various things in the environment and we're trying to see if neural networks can do the same and there's a lot of inspiration uh that that can be taken from from how humans learn um but it, like there's slight separation between whether we should exactly replicate how neurons work in a human brain versus neurons work in a computer thing, because the human brain neurons are built using and, and like they, their learning mechanisms and their activation mechanisms are using very, very different chemicals and you know, like, you know, different acids and proteins and stuff. And, and the fundamental building blocks in a computer are very, very different. You have transistors and, you know, they work bitwise and so on. So I think at a fundamental block level, we, we shouldn't really look for uh, exact inspirations. But at a very high level, we should definitely um, look for inspiration. You used the word understand several times in, in that the computer does a computer understand that it doesn't do computers actually understand anything and is that at root maybe the problem that they don't actually have a, an experiencing self that understands you know there's as they say in the field nobody home there's and therefore there are just going to be these limits of things that come easy to us because we have a self and we do understand things but all a computer can do is sense things uh, is that a meaningful distinction? Well, a computer can, like, so we can sense things and a computer can sense things in the sense that you have a sensor. You can, you can consume visual inputs, audio inputs, you know, stuff like that. But understanding can be as simple as, you know, statistical understanding. You, you see something very frequently and you associate that frequency with this, this particular association of a term or an object. And humans have a statistical understanding of things and they have a causal understanding of things. And we have various different understanding uh, approaches. And machines can, at this point, like, you know, with neural networks and stuff, we take a, a statistical or frequency uh, approach to things and we can do them really well. There's other uh, aspects of machine learning research as well that try to do different kinds of understanding, like causal models try to, um, you know, like they try to consume data and see if there's a causal relationship uh, between uh, two sets of variables and so on. So there's various levels of understanding and like understanding itself is not a magical word that can be broken down. I think we can break it down into like what kinds and what approaches of understanding and machines can do certain kinds of understanding and humans can do certain more kinds of understanding that machines can't. Well, I want to, I want to explore that for just a moment. You're, you're probably familiar with Searle's Chinese room uh, thought experiment, but for the benefit of the listeners, there's it's uh, the philosopher uh, put out this, this way to, to, to think about, um, that word. So the, the setup is that there's a man who speaks no Chinese, none at all. And he's uh, in this giant room full of all these very special books. And people 
slide questions written in Chinese under the door. He picks them up and he has what I guess you call an algorithm. He looks at the first symbol. He finds the book with that symbol on the spine. He looks up the second symbol that directs him to a third book, a fourth book, a fifth book. He works his way all the way through until he gets to the last character and he copies down um, the characters for the answer. He copies them down. Again, doesn't, doesn't know what they what they're talking about at all. He slides it back under the door. The Chinese speaker picks it up, reads it. It's perfect Chinese. It's, it's perfect answer. It, you know, it rhymes and it's insightful and pithy. And so the, the question that Searle's trying to pose is does, is obviously that's all a computer does. It's a deterministic system that runs these, these kind of canned algorithms that, uh, that doesn't understand whether it's talking about cholera or coffee beans or what have you, that there really is something to understanding. And, and, and Weizenbaum, the man who wrote Eliza, he even went so far to say that when a computer says, I understand, that it's, it's just a lie, because not only is there nothing to understand, there's just not even an I there to understand. So in what sense would you say a computer understands something? Um, I think the the um the Chinese room thing is it's an interesting uh, puzzle it, 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 it's a thought provoking um situation rather um but i don't know about you know the conclusions you can come to um we like we've seen a lot of historical manuscripts and stuff that, that we've excavated um, from various regions in the world and we didn't understand that language at all. But over time, through like certain statistical techniques or certain associations, we did understand which words like what the what the fundamental letters in these languages are or you know what these words mean and so on. And like, no one told us exactly what these words mean or like what this language exactly implies. And we don't know, we definitely don't know how those languages are actually pronounced, but we do understand them by making frequentist associations with certain words to other words or certain words to certain symbols. And we understand what, uh, what the word for a man is in a certain historical language or what the word for a woman is. With statistical techniques, you can actually understand what a certain, you know, word is, even if you don't, if you, even if you don't understand the underlying language uh, beforehand. I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of information you can gain um, and you can actually understand and learn concepts by using statistical techniques. Like if you look at one example which, uh, in recent machine learning times, is this thing called word to vec It's a system where it, it, you, uh, what it does is you give it a sentence and it replaces the center word of the sentence with a random other word from the dictionary. And it uses that sentence with this random word in the middle as a negative example, and uh, without replacing the random word, the sentence as is, is a positive example. And just using the simple technique, uh, you learn embeddings of words, that is numbers associated with each word that will try to give some 
uh, structure to the word, some statistical structure to the word. And with just a simple model, which doesn't understand anything about what these words mean or what, you know, what, uh, what in what context these words are used, you can do simple things like, can you tell me what man minus woman uh, plus king, uh, it's some, something like man minus, a uh, king minus man plus woman is. So when you think of king, you think of, okay, it's a man uh, head of state, and then you say minus um, man. So, so king minus man will try to give you a neutral character of a head of state, and then you add woman up, and then you expect queen. And that's exactly what the system returns without actually understanding what each of these words specifically mean or like, you know, how they're spelled or what context they're in. So I think there's more to this story than we actually understand. Um, that is, I think there's a certain level of understanding we can get just by not like, even without prior context of, uh, of, knowing how things work. And in the same way, computers, I think, can learn and associate certain things without knowing about the real world or, you know, like like one of the common arguments given is like, well, but computers haven't been there and seen that inter like just like humans did, so they can't actually make full associations. And that's probably true. They can make full associations, but I think with partial information, they can understand certain concepts and infer certain things just with statistical and causal models that they have uh, to learn. Well, let me, let me try my question a little different. Um, and we're, we'll get back to the here and now, but this to me is, is really germane because it speaks to how far we're going to be able to go in terms of using our present techniques and our present architectures to build things that we deem to be intelligent. Could a computer ever, in your mind, could a computer ever feel pain? I mean, surely you can, you can, you can put a sensor on a computer that can take the temperature, and you can write a program that when that hits 500 degrees, it should start playing this, you know, MP3 of somebody screaming in agony. But could a computer ever feel pain? Can it ever experience anything? Um, I don't think so. Um, but pain is something I think that's been baked into humans. And if you bake pain into computers, then yeah, maybe, but like not, not without it evolving to learn what pain is or like baking that in ourselves. I don't think it will. But is knowing pain, what pain is really the same thing as experiencing it? Like you can know uh, everything about it but the experience of stubbing your toe is something different than the knowledge of, of what pain is. Yeah. It probably doesn't know exactly what it, like what pain is. It just knows how to associate with certain like things about pain, but there are certain aspects of humans that a computer probably can't exactly relate to, but a computer at this stage of our, of uh, machines, has a visual sensor, has an audio sensor, has, you know, a speaker and has a touch sensors and it has, now we're like getting to smell sensors. Like, so yes, a computer probably can't experience every single thing that humans experience in the same way, but it, I think 
that's largely dissociative from like what we need for intelligence. Like, I think like computer can have its own specific intelligence, um, but not necessarily have all aspects of humans covered. Like we're not trying to replicate a human, right? We're trying to replicate the intelligence that the human has. So do you believe that the techniques that we're using today, the way we look at machine learning, the algorithms we use, um, basic architectures, are those, how long is that going to kind of fuel the advance of AI? Are, are, do you think the techniques we have now, if, if just, hey, given more data, faster computers, tweak algorithms, will eventually get to something as versatile as a human? Or do you think to get to an AGI or something like it, something that really can effortlessly move between domains and is going to require some completely unknown and undiscovered technology? I I think like what you're associating or like what you're implying is like do we need a breakthrough that, that we don't know about yet that, that we need AGI for? And my honest answer is we probably do. Um I just don't know what that thing looks like because like we just don't know ahead of time, I guess. Um I think we are going in certain directions that we think can get us to better, better intelligence. Like right now, where we are is that we, we collect a very, very large data set and then we throw it into a neural network model and then it will learn something of uh, significance. But we are trying to reduce the amount of data the neural network needs to, to learn the same thing. We're trying to increase the number of tasks the same neural network can learn. And we don't know how to do either of things properly yet, uh, not as properly as, you know, if uh, we want to train some um, dog detector by throwing large amounts of dog pictures at it. Um, and I think through scientific process, we will get to a place where we understand better what we need. And like over, like, over this process, we will probably have some unknown models that will come up or like some breakthroughs that will happen. And I think that is largely needed for us to get to like general AI. Um, definitely don't know what the timelines are like or what that looks like. Talk about uh, adversarial AI for a moment. That's an area that you have, um, I watched uh, a, a talk you gave on, on the topic and yes. can you kind of just give us the, the broad overview of what the theory is and where we are at with it? Sure. Um, adversarial networks are these very simple um, ways of neural networks um, that, that we built. Like what we built is like, we'd realized that one of the most common ways we've been training neural networks is you give neural networks some data and then you give it an expected output. And if the neural network gives an output that is slightly off from your expected output, you train the neural network to get better at this particular uh, task. And over time, as you give more data and you tune it to give the correct output, the neural network gets better. But adversarial networks are these slightly different, uh, slightly different uh, formulation of machines where you have two neural networks and one neural network um, tries to synthesize some data. Like 
it takes in uh, no inputs or it takes some random noise as input and then it tries to generate some data and you have another neural network that takes in some data whether it's real data or data that is generated by this this neural net generated neural, generator neural network and this neural network its job uh, is to discriminate between the real data and the generated data. Uh, and that this is called a discriminator network. So you have two networks. You have a generator, a generator network that tries to synthesize artificial data, and you have a discriminator network that tries to um, tell apart the real data and, and the artificially generated data. And the way these things are trained is that the generator network gets rewards if it can fool the discriminator, if it can make the discriminator think that the data it synthesized is uh, real. Um, and the discriminator only gets rewards when it can accurately separate out the fake data from the real data. So there's just a slight different formulation in how these things, uh, these neural networks learn. And we call this an unsupervised learning algorithm because they're just, they're not really um, hooking on to any aspects of what the task at hand is. They just want to play this game between each other regardless of like what data is being synthesized. Um, so that's adversarial networks uh, in a short. Oh. It sounds like a digital Turing test where one computer is trying to fool the other one to think that it's that it's got the real the real data yeah you could see it that way so where are we where are we at practically speaking because it's kind of the hot thing right now is it is this kind of established itself as a as a and, and what kinds of problems is it good at solving just general unsupervised learning problems yes so adversarial networks are important or have not important like or they've gotten very popular is because they seem to be a promising method to do unsupervised learning. Um, and we think unsupervised learning is one of the biggest things we need to crack before we get to like more intelligent machines. Um, that's basically the primary reason, like they're a very promising method to do unsupervised learning. Well, even without an AGI, there's a lot of fear wrapped up in people about the effects of artificial intelligence, specifically automation. Um, on the job market and, and people fall into one of three groups, you know, there's people who think that um, we're going to enter a, a kind of a permanent Great Depression where there's a substantial portion of the population that's not able to add economic value. And then another group says, well, actually, that's going to happen to all of us. Everything, anything a human can do, we're going to be able to build a machine to do. And then there are people who say the, the third view is no, we've had we've had disruptive technologies come along like electricity and machines and steam power and, and it's never bumped unemployment. People have just used these new machines to increase productivity and therefore wages. Where of those three camps, where do you find yourself and or, or is there a fourth one? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think, um, I think it's, it's a very important policy and social question on how to deal with AI. Um, yes, we have in the past had technology disruptions and adapted to them, but they didn't happen 
just by market forces, right? Like you, you had certain policy changes and certain, certain um, incentives and short-term uh, boosts for the depression. Uh, and you had certain um, uh, f- like, you know, parachutes uh, that you had to give to people during these drastically changing times. And so it's a very, very important policy question on how to deal with the the progress that AI is making and what that means for the job market. And and I think not just and and, and I follow the camper I don't think it will just solve solve itself. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a big role that both government and companies and experts uh, have to play in understanding what kind of changes that are coming and how to deal with them. Um, organizations like the UN could probably help with this transition, but also um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, non-profit companies uh, and organizations coming up like do, uh, like you know, who have the mission of doing AI for good and they also have policy research going on and I think this will play more and more of a big role and this is very very important to deal with uh, our transition uh, into a, a technology world where AI becomes the norm. So to be clear, it sounds like you're saying you do think that automation or AI will be substantially disruptive to the job market. Am I am I understanding you correctly? And that we yeah, ought to prepare for that it. Is correct. I think even if we have no more breakthroughs in AI as of now, like if we have literally no significant progress in AI for the next five years or ten years we will still, just with the current AI technology that we have, we will still be disrupting large um, large domains and fields and uh, markets. No, I think, such as, what, what, do you, what do you mean specifically, such as? Um, one of the most obvious is transportation, right? Like we, we are, um, we've largely, um, solve the fundamental challenges in building self-driving ways. But, but hold on, let me, let me interrupt you real quickly. But you just said in the next five years, I mean, clearly you're not going to have massive displacement in that industry in five years, because even if we get over the technological hurdle, there's still the, the regulatory hurdle, there's still retrofitting machinery. I mean, that's 20 years of, of transition, isn't it? In which time uh, what I kinda, everybody will retire who's driving a truck now and few people will enter into the field. Like, Right. What I, what, you, go that, uh, what I specifically said was that even if we have no AI breakthroughs in the five or ten years, I, like I, I'm not saying that the 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 markets themselves will change in five years. What I specifically said and meant is that even if we have no AI research breakthroughs in five years, we will still see large markets be disrupted. Uh, regardless, like we don't need another AI breakthrough to disrupt certain certain markets. Um, I see, but don't you take any don't you take encouragement from the past that I mean you, you can say like t- transportation, but when you look at something like the replacement of animal power with mechanical power, 
And just if you just think of all of the technology, all of the people that displaced, or you think of the assembly line, which is if you think about it, a kind of AI, right? If you're a craftsperson who makes cars or coaches or whatever, one at a time, and this new technology comes along, the assembly line, that can do it for a tenth the price and 10 times the quality, that's mm-hmm. incredibly disrupting. And yet in those two instances, we didn't have upticks in unemployment. Um, yes. So why would uh, AI be different? I think it's just the scale of things and the fact that we don't understand fully how, how things are going to change. Like, yes, we, we can try to associate something similar in the past with something similar that's happening right now. But I think the scale of and magnitude of things is very, very different. Like, you're talking about in the past, like over 30 years, something has changed. And now you're talking about in the, in the next 10 years, something will change or like something even sooner. So the scale of things and the number of jobs that are affected and like all these things are very different. And I, I think it's going to be a hard question that we have to thoroughly investigate and take proper policy changes. I don't think it's because of the scale of things. I don't know if market forces will just like fix things. So what do you, when you weigh all of the, all of the future with, as you said, with the technology we have now, and you look to the future and, and you see in one column all, a lot of, um, you think, disruption in the job market, and then you see all the things that artificial intelligence is going to do for us in all its various fields. To, to most people, is AI therefore a good thing? I mean, are you, are you overall optimistic about the future with regard to this technology? Absolutely. I think AI provides us benefits that we, we absolutely need as humans. Like, I mean, there's no doubt that the upsides are enormous. Like you can, like you, you accelerate drug discovery, you accelerate how, how healthcare works, you accelerate how humans um, transport uh, from one place to other. It's, the magnitude of benefits is enormous um, if the promises are kept um, or the expectations are kept. And dealing with the policy changes is essential, I think. But like, yeah, my, my definite bullish view is that the upsides are so enormous that it's totally worth it. What would you think in an AI world, what would you think it's a good technology path to go because from um, from an employment status, because I, I see two things. I saw you, you read pretty compelling things that say, you know, data scientist is a super in demand thing right now, but that'll be one of the first things we automate because we can just build tools that do a lot of what that job is. Right. And you have people like Mark Cuban who say if he had it, to, he who believes, by the way, the first trillionaires will come from this technology. He said if he had it to do all over again, he would, if he, were, if he were coming up now, he would study philosophy and liberal arts because those are the things the machines won't be able to do. So what, what's your take on that? Like if you, if you were a, getting ready to enter university right now and you were looking for something to study that you think would be a field that you can make a career in long term, what would you pick? I wouldn't pick something based on what's going to be hot. Like I, I, like the way I pick my career now and 
I think the way people should pick their careers is really like what they will, like what they're interested in. Um, now, if their only goal is to find a job, um, then maybe they should pick what Mark Cuban says. But I also think uh, just being a technologist of some kind, like you know, whether they will try to become a scientist or whether um, they become like just being an expert in something um technology wise or you know like being a doctor i think these things will still be helpful uh i i, I don't know how to associate like the, the problem the, the question is slightly weird to me because like it's like how do i make the most successful career and like i've never thought about it uh I've just thought about like, what do I want to do that's most interesting? And I, so yeah, I don't have a good answer because I've never thought about it deeply. And do you, do you enjoy um, science fiction? Is there, is there anything in the science fiction world like movies or books or TV shows that you think represents how the future's like gonna turn out? Like you look at it and think, ah, yes, things could happen that way. I do enjoy science fiction. I. I don't necessarily have specific books or movies that that exactly would you know depict how the future looks, but I think you can take various aspects from various movies and say, "Huh, that does seem like a possibility, um, but you don't necessarily have to buy into the full story, like for example, if you look at the movie her, um you have a uh, an OS that talks to you by voice has a personality and evolves with uh, its experiences and all that. And I, that seems like very reasonable to me. Like you probably will have um, voice assistants that, that will be smarter and will, will be programmed to develop a personality and evolve with their experiences. Now, will they like go and like make their own, OS society, I don't know. That seemed like uh, a bit weird. And so I think there's there's like, in, in popular culture, there's various like, various examples like this that seems like they're definitely plausible. Are you, do you keep up with the OpenAI initiative and what are your thoughts on that? Well, OpenAI seems to be a very good research lab um, that that does fundamental AI research, tries to make progress in the field, just like uh, all of the others are doing. And they seem to have a specific mission to be a nonprofit and whatever research they do, they want to try to uh, not tie it to a particular company. I, I think they're doing good work. So I, I guess the, the traditional worry about it is that you know, an AGI, if we built one, is is of essentially limitless value if you can make, you know, digital copies of, if you think about it, all values created in, in essence by technology, by human human thought and human creativity. And if you somehow capture that genie in that bottle, that um, you can use it for great good or great harm. And I think there are people who worry that 
by kind of giving 99% of the formula away to everybody, no matter how bad their intentions are, you increase the likelihood that there'll be one bad actor who kind of gets that last little bit and, and has essentially control of this incredibly powerful technology. It would be akin to the Manhattan Project being open source, except for the very um, you know, last step of the, of the bomb. I think that's a worry some people have expressed. What do you think? I think AI is going to be not be able to be developed in isolation. We will have to get uh, to progress in AI collectively. Uh, that's just like, I don't think it will happen in a way where like you just have a bunch of people secretly trying to develop AI and suddenly they come up with this AGI that's uh, like eternally powerful and like, you know, something that will take over humanity or something like that. I don't think that fantasy that is like one of the most popular ways you, you see things in uh, fiction and in movies will happen. The way I think it will happen is researchers will incrementally publish progress. And at some point, um, like it will be gradual, like AI will get smarter and smarter and smarter, not just like, some extra magic bit that will make it inhumanly smart. I don't think that will happen. All right. Well, if people want to keep up with you, how, how do they follow you personally in the stuff that you're working on? Um, I usually have, I, I, I have a Twitter account. That's, that's how people usually follow what I've been up to. Uh, it's twitter.com slash summit Chintala. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Byron. I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.